case you haven't noticed, things have been going downhill around here lately. Dan Roberts, our own tame engineer, has been doing about a zillion shuttle laps over the past bunch of months while testing four very different downhill bikes. And you can see all those reviews on Pinkbike right now, as well as a head-to-head article and a DH fork comparison article. But today, I have the man himself to talk about it all. Dan, introduce yourself, tell us where you live, and tell us what four downhill bikes you've been riding. Hello there, I'm Dan, 34 years old, live in Champery, that's in Switzerland. Um, I'm a bike engineer and also work for Pinkbike as well, obviously. Um, and the four downhill bikes that we've been testing with are Specialized Demo Race, Canyon Sender CFR, the Commensal Supreme DH2927, and Cubes 215 HPC SLT. I, you said the Cube's full name there. I'm impressed. Did you remember it or are you reading it? Uh, I I remembered all my lines for the filming, so I've still got that like etched into my head of what I need Burned to say. into your head. Nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've also got Mike Casimir here, and him and I are going to ask Dan way too many questions about all these downhill bikes he's been riding. And then at the end, we're going to make him do some tough comparisons because there is no fence sitting allowed on this show. But first... I've been told to remind everybody to subscribe and give this podcast a five-star rating or something like that as well on whatever app you're using to listen to us. Now that that's done, Dan, I have a, I have a very relevant question to ask you. So you joke in your head-to-head article about declining DH bike sales, but let's be real here. I mean, there aren't a lot of DH bike sales to begin with. Downhill bikes make up a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the bikes sold worldwide, the mountain bikes sold worldwide, compared to trail bikes, entry-level bikes, cross-country bikes, all that kind of stuff. So in light of that, why should we care about downhill bikes? Why do they matter? Why are they important? And why did we do a a four-part review on these things? Mainly because they're cool as hell. Like, right <laughs> I, yeah very much yeah uh no i i personally i get the most excited ever looking at a downhill bike or thinking about going to ride in a downhill bike but yeah it's true um lots of comments recently have been about the decline of downhill bike sales and i haven't seen any or talked to anyone who could back that up so talking about declining numbers i don't know but for sure when you look at like a company's spreadsheet of how many downhill bikes they sell which is maybe somewhere between like three to four thousand for some of the big brands versus that many yeah i remember from working at some companies that yeah if you launch the bike that year potentially yeah between three and four thousand versus say seventy eighty thousand of all the models for say like a a kind of bread and butter model in that brand's lineup but yeah the all right if you just compare them for numbers then yeah you could uh, run the risk of not caring about them but yeah they are just damn cool and there's they are the bikes that you can definitely go the fastest on in the most demanding terrain there's no questions about that really and i think that makes downhill bike racing then such a spectacle and that drives kind of the sport in terms of like sales for brands maybe not with downhill bikes but sales for brands it drives like uh, development and I'm definitely not going to compare downhill bikes to any motorsport things because we have got a long way to go before we get to the same level of like Formula One, if you will. But no, they lots of things from downhill bikes over the past years has driven driven other bikes forward. And I dare say 
maybe it was downhill bikes that helped the trail and enduro bikes of today get better. People were hunting for that kind of stability, those head angles, those kind of uh, characters, if you will. They wanted to instill some of that in trail and enduro bikes. So, yeah, yeah, and racing's just damn cool. Like last year was you—you you watched everyone be miserable for so long, and then as soon as downhill racing and then the World Cups came, it was amazing. It was wicked to watch. So, right, yeah, we we joke, Kaz and I, we joke about downhill bikes all the time and stuff, but like, Kaz. There is nothing better than a day in the bike park on a big, fast downhill bike and just letting it roll, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's, this last year has been so weird. I realized that uh, 2020, I didn't ride a downhill bike for the first time in so many years because like, just because the chairlifts were closed. and right. So it felt super strange. So reading through all of Dan's reviews, I definitely have the itch to be like, oh, I hope I can get downhill yeah. bike in again chairlift laps this year. Because, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing that beats it. It's like a powder day and you have big powder skis it's the right tool for the job at the time and you know it's gonna be fun so yeah they still as much as we joke we do still love downhill bikes obviously yeah yeah world cup racing is absolutely ridiculous and getting to ride these bikes is ridiculous if you haven't ever had the chance to ride a full-on full-on dh race bike definitely try to do that because it's quite the experience Dan touched on two other things there. One is the marketing. Downhill bikes definitely drive sales of other types of bikes as well. And then that bike development. Um, so yeah, I think those are the reasons why we should care about downhill bikes. I mean, let alone that they're awesome to ride. So Dan, let's move on to testing. Uh, you said you're in Champery, Switzerland. I think a lot of a lot of listeners will be familiar with that spot. It's a pretty steep area, eh? Fairly, yeah. The whole Alps around here is generally quite steep yeah yeah now you've also mentioned that you had some other testers on these bikes how did that go and then describe the testing itself did you do back-to-back testing yeah so talking about the testers we had uh i actually managed well i tested all of them myself obviously but also i had some people in there like my fiance nadine i had um my friends niels he's a product manager for gt swiss uh ruben who is actually Mr. Royal Mountain Bikes and Basil, who's another bike engineer for Termos. And like these guys range from, in my eyes, they're all horrendously fast riders. And then like say my fiance Nadine, she's super lightweight. She somehow makes tires last forever. I don't know how she does that. And then you've got like Basil, who's self-described as a hundred kilos of lust. So we kind of just, I kind of, many days we spent i'd just go with a bike full of dh uh, vans full of dh bikes sorry and just like hand them out and we'd swap and change and see how different people with different riding styles got on with them and i think that was pretty good to get their feedback and how to set up and how the feedback came back as well and then uh yeah some different perspectives exactly yeah like not only just how they ride but like how easy were they to get set up how comfortable did they feel on the bike and it wasn't just in one place either. We kind of did that quite a few times all over the place. And then right. back to back, yes, for sure. Uh, of course, sometimes it was just like one day you spent on one bike. Lots of times it was kind of a couple bikes went to a, a place or a resort. Um, but actually, it ended up being about five full days plus a day filming plus a day when we did the time runs where I did all four bikes in the day as well which was quite interesting to go back to back to back to back. That was really cool, actually. I, I have a question about timed runs. So Casimir and I, we do a lot of time testing with the field test. 
And I, I know, Casimir, that you and I like to talk about how bikes feel more than what the watch says. But I think it's a bit of a different story if we're talking downhill bikes that are meant to race. How much stock do you put in this time testing? How important is it um, for these kind of bikes? I think... For the, yeah, for this genre of mountain bikes, say at either end, you've got like XC racing and downhill racing, where it's quite an the bikes are driven by that niche racing sport. So I, I put quite a bit on there, um, probably more than that gray area of mountain bikes in the middle that you get trail and enduro potentially and stuff like that. But um, no, quite a bit. Quite a bit because it's also some demanding tracks here, so it does kind of tell quite a story. And when you put a stopwatch on, for some reason, you 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 tense up as well. So it's a different scenario as well. So it's cool to see how the bikes perform when you're not just chilling or riding with friends. And I think it's I think it's quite valid here. Yeah. What level are you attacking the trail at when you're evaluating downhill bikes? So if I'm out on a trail bike, I can't ride it at 110% and expect to get any useful information from it. Um, I want to ride it at 85, 90% at a pace that I can go quickly, but that I can still take stuff in, if you know what I'm saying. So, But with these downhill bikes, these are big, long things that... I mean, I think you'll agree sometimes you need to ride them hard and aggressive to get the most out of them. So was that something that you had to be conscious of during testing? Yeah, I firstly, I'd put it out here that so many of the guys we ride with and friends out here are ridiculously fast. So you just kind of get towed into behind them and it, you often dragged at ridiculous speeds. But yeah, I'd say... You can chill and lots, of course, lots of runs were kind of chilled runs and stuff, but I like to push it and I definitely feel you can learn about a bike when you kind of drop in at the deep end and really like push hard and chuck it down the World Cup track full speed like on the first day and stuff like that. So I, I tend to try and push these bikes really hard. And sometimes, yeah, that does go over the limit. You go over that, I say 100% and you're starting to try and you do get away with murder. And some bikes let you, uh, some bikes even encouraged it, some bikes didn't want to do that and they felt like they started to reach that little the little uh the limit almost <laughs> did you did you stay injury free during all of this testing somehow i have no idea i hit some trees <laughs> I, I had some crashes like so scratches bruises sore bones and everything but yeah had no injuries that stopped me riding so i touched everything on wood now uh since yeah i mean the first bike arrived in june and we're still riding downhill now we've had we've been doing a lot of skiing but we're still riding downhill now so yeah you've had some of these test bikes for a long time then haven't you yeah it's been cool we've got the terrain to ride it here so you can really like give them a good thrashing for a long time right all right, well, why don't we just get right into comparing these four downhill bikes, and we're going to start with that cherry red aluminum specialized demo race, 205 millimeters of rear wheel travel. This one costs $6,800 American. It weighs 37 pounds. Dan, the demo was revamped a few years ago, and you say that this new version, the latest version, has way more progression than the old demos. What exactly are you talking about and why is that important? Why is it relevant to downhill bikes? 
So there's probably three things there. Progression is the talking about the leverage ratio. So it's talking about the ratio of force or travel between the rear axle and the shock. And the progression is basically the change from the start of your leverage ratio to the end. And historically, if we look back, specialized bikes have been conservative in, say, geometry and suspension. They've also been quite active. The ideals of specialized of a brand have been quite active bikes through the leverage ratio, through the anti-rise, through the anti-squat. So when they changed the layout uh, a few years ago now, it was quite a surprise, actually, because it was almost like it was such a jump away from what we were expecting and what we thought was coming. And it's good because the old bikes were too linear. The old demo was probably too linear and because of that needed some setup uh, differences to help it out and put it into a bit of a corner. Is it is it as simple as saying the old demo bottoms out more than the new demo? What is what is a racer getting out of a bike with more progression? So they're going to have a more supple beginning stroke. You've got higher leverage ratios. They're potentially going to have a bit more support in the middle of their stroke. And yes, they would have more mechanical ramp throughout it as well. So there's also a limit. You can't just keep going more and more progressive. And I think we'll get into a bit later. One of the bikes was super progressive, but there's a balance that you need to strike in a bike. Either be you can't like there's too linear and there's also too progressive. Right. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into more of that stuff a bit later. Um, but I also wanted to ask about the demos flip chip. Now that lets you run it with two 29-inch wheels or a mullet setup, a 27.5-inch rear wheel. What did you run the bike in, Dan? And is that your preference? Was that your preference? Yeah, so the flip chips on the demo are at the horse pivot. So when you change that, it actually changes the whole bike. So some of the the other bikes we had, the geometry adjustments on them were more specific to one measurement or angle. But on the demo, it changes the whole bike. And so effectively, you've got the option to run two different wheel size setups, each with two different BB heights. Um, and the shorter answer is I rode it in all of them. So it arrived as a mullet bike, tried both settings of the mullet bike, and also threw a 29er rear wheel in and tried both settings of the 29er rear wheel. What did you like most? What, what setup uh, did you prefer? I'm not. I'm a tall guy, like six foot two, and I can, I've got enough trouser clearance to run a big 29er wheel in the back. So I prefer i'm not gonna lie i prefer full 29 setups i like the speed that they can do and i also like the slight need that they need to be more like ridden a tiny bit harder if you will they kind of egg you on to ride hard but the reward you get from them i feel is awesome Mm -hmm. so one of the first lines in your comparison article you say that the demo was the easiest to get on and ride what what exactly did you mean by that so first the demo needed, it was the first one that arrived actually in June last year, and it needed, um, as is a bit of the trend with a lot of these bikes, um, quite a different setup eventually to what the initial like bike arrived as. But once we'd kind of got it comfy in terms of spring rates and kind of damping windows, you could just get on it and be heading at quite a serious pace already and feel very familiar with it, feel very familiar with what it was going to do in a variety of different scenarios and different terrains. And I was definitely something that everyone that jumped on it 
said and even when my friend Basil jumped on the bike first run you were like visibly could see he was confident he was pushing hard he and like two runs later he's ripping downhill tires off the rims so you could almost see it exuding from him that he was comfortable and it was the same when you rode it you you felt familiar it was like a bike that you'd owned for a long time why why do you think that is what what about the demo gives it that character Firstly, I spent a long time trying to get it set up right. (laughs) (laughs) That helps. Um, (laughs) So that when we gave it to other people, it felt a bit easier. But um, it's it's generally quite sorted. It's it's nice geometry. It's good balance front to back. The suspension isn't too extreme in well too extreme in one direction or the other. It's quite progressive, but which meant it needed quite a bit more spring rate for me. But it's not a it's quite a well-sorted, balanced um, thing of like geometry and suspension and details and character. and It feels pretty good. It's just quite a nice little sorted package that they've got there. Yeah, I think like looking at the geometry, that one I guess would be the pretty much the shortest reach or second shortest with cube. So I wonder if that has anything to do with just a little bit shorter bike, do you think? Is that just in the cockpit make it a little easier to toss around or think it's sure. a combination of all those? Yeah, when you compare it to some of the other bikes, which are getting up towards like 485 reaches, then yeah, the the ease to jump on and just feel it, feel good on it, might have, can be attributed to yeah, the the reach probably being a bit shorter. Like your movements as a rider get less lost in that long geometry, so they're quite um, direct and straight into a movement from the bike. I wouldn't just say it's just the reach; it's kind of like everything. But yeah, it was the shortest bike contest that we had. You also said that it. I'm quoting here, certainly needed a bit more attention to keep it there with its window for air feeling a tiny bit narrower than the more raced focused bikes. So it, it sounds like maybe it was a little closer to the edge when you were riding hard. Was Would you agree with that? And why do you think that was? Yeah, I said limit before, and I think maybe limit's the wrong word because Loic Bruni goes friggin' fast on this thing. But um, what's your excuse, Dan? Come on! I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm scared. Enough yeah, <laughs> um, No, I think it's in its ability to kind of be a jack of all trades. That's where it lost a bit of, say, that single race focus that some of the other bikes had. And yet, when you did put it up at the same speeds, same commitment levels, same exact same situations as the other bikes. You felt you just had to have your wits about you a tiny bit more. And someone in the comments alluded that this might, is it close to an Enduro bike? I was like, no, it's still far off from an Enduro bike or a big race Enduro bike. It's still way more competent and and confidence inspiring, if you will. But yeah, I guess it's where they've kind of positioned it, if you will, within that downhill niche is a bit more, for me, all round, which is also good. It's a jack of all trades, a really good jack of them but it just took a little bit away from that really pointy race focus. Yeah. I just, I want to boil those words down a little more still. Um, What exactly is the sensation? Is it like maybe feeling like you don't have quite as much traction or are you getting more feedback through the bike? What is it that has the demo feeling a little closer to the edge, you could say? I don't know whether this people agree with this, but I often talk about bikes in terms of like a proper character of like a person or even the kind of conversation that you have with them when you're riding. And 
riding the demo up at those flat out speeds, it every now and again, you're just like, oh, oh crap, oh, oh, like, oh, and just kind of need to be on it. Some of the other ones are like, ah, come on, you can push faster, you can go harder, like a little kind of whisper behind on one of your shoulders telling you to go a bit harder. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just a slight bit nervous. It's really not like night and day, and it isn't something to really take anything away from the bike, but it just comparing back to back with the other bikes we had it just didn't quite have that steadfast reassurance right up there at the limit yeah it's kind of it's a definitely interesting sensation i rode the i guess last year's demo so that'd be the uh, 29 inch wheel front and rear but it still kind of has that i don't want to call it a bike park bike but it does have that kind of like you're saying that easygoing nature you hop on you can goof off right away where you know there are more bikes that just feel like a little more racy for me the one that comes to mind is the bike that i've ridden most recently like that santa cruz v10 for me that was always a bike that's like oh yeah you need to go fast and that's when you you know it's hard to put that into an exact characteristic of the bike that causes that feeling but some yeah. bikes have that one need for speed where other ones let you kind of goof off a little more um, and still race them as well yeah so dan you're not Blaming it on the 148 millimeter hub spacing. <laughs> <laughs> Just joking, everybody. <laughs> we can Let's, try. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> on the trail, does that matter? 148 to 157. Does that matter? Does that make a difference? For me, no. Um, I can't say that one was better on the trail for me than the other i think when you start to look at the factors yeah you could have with a 148 more heel clearance maybe sacrifice a bit of tire clearance potentially but then you've got the advantages of um, parts because it's the same boost spacing as lots of other enduro and trail bikes so but out on the trail it's not like you jump on a bike with a 157 and you're like i can't ride this thing or the other way around it's no and again, it's it's a bit narrower back end. It's kind of helps it wiggle through bits and pieces, but you still whack it on yeah. stuff all day long. So, yeah, I like that feature of it because you inevitably, especially a downhill bike, you're going to toast a, a rim at some point. So then you can just pull one off another bike, and I just think it makes sense to have that. Um, in this case, it's it's nice. Yeah. Probably the rim you've got in your enduro or trail bike is not going to hang up on, <laughs> on the downhill bike, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's good. To, it's nice to have that uh, if you're trying to keep a garage full of bikes and going it's it's not a bad feature to have Mm -hmm. so for years when i thought of specialized i thought of relatively low bottom brackets dan that's going back a few years uh that doesn't sound like it's the case with the demo anymore you said that the demo at 350 mils uh was one of the higher bikes and you could actually adjust it to sit at 355 even a little bit higher um why do you think Specialized went that route, and what does that mean on the trail? So, actually, we had some recent discussions with Specialized because their their bike is very adjustable. And like we said, when you adjust it, all the bike geometry changes. And there's four settings in there. So trying to put that in a geometry table is nigh on impossible to make it um, readable. So we were going through and checking through the the user manuals and stuff like that. And we actually discovered some problems and discrepancies in the geometry. So actually the geometry table we've got in the demo review is literally straight from specialized and goes through every single setting accurately. 
And when we've also 3D scanned all these bikes, and that was pretty damn bang on. But yes, the one thing that was different to real life was the BB heights. So they, this is a problem that every bike brand has, and it comes from the difference in um, 2D drawings of tires to what's there in the real world. Because when you design a bike, one of the first things you need to know is the outside diameter of your tire. That's where your axles sit at, and that's where everything off the bike builds from. And so you use often the 2D drawing specs of the tires, and these are quite big compared to the real world. So lots of bikes are actually sitting a lot lower than what the geometry tables might say, and that's exactly the case we had with the demo. So we were measuring between 7 and 8 mil lower BB heights than what they've got in the even updated table. Wow, that's that's a big difference considering that many brands put that range of adjustment as a selling feature <laughs> yeah it's, it's mad i've had lots of discussions with people from the tire industry about how how that happens how it's how you can remedy it and so on and now lots of brands are actually creating databases of real world tire measurements and using those as the outside diameters to to work from to actually have your bike sitting at the place that they would be in real life it's almost like there needs to be like a control tire, like a like a trainer tire. It's always this high when you inflate it to X PSI. That's what you get no matter what. I and everybody has to use it. A guy that when I was a kid, one a guy's brother that we were riding with, he had a solid rubber tires. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Them. You never inflate them. Right? Yeah. You don't have that exactly. problem then, right? So uh-huh. yeah. Way less <laughs> flat tires too, everybody. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's talk about suspension a bit. Uh, you mentioned that you actually got some trail debris jammed into the demo's linkage. That's something that I've seen here as well. What's going on there? And can you just put like some moto foam in there or, or how could we solve this issue? Yeah, so the demo's got quite a few links. And when you compress the suspension, the lower link that drives the shock, one of the lower links that drives the shock, uh, it and the chain state open up and you kind of create this like hole which is literally in the firing line of mud debris and yes yeah, some pretty sizable rocks and chunks of trail that can go in there so then when your suspension rebounds it like compacts and compresses it and uh, i think moto foam won't do it if you kind of fashion some sort of uh expandable mud guard almost maybe off of a inner tube or something and somehow stopped it from getting in the tire, that could work. But this and the Canyon, which we'll get to later, had this, because they share the same layout, had this exact problem. And I had quite a few big rocks that actually got in there and damaged them a little bit. So, Yeah. I've actually seen a broken uh, enduro frame, uses similar linkage down there, and it had a rock trapped in there and it ended up cracking the frame. So, I mean, it is an issue that people should be aware of. That's for sure. Yeah, I guess at least in this case, you've got an aluminum frame, so maybe a little less likely to cause damage. But yeah, it's still, if you watch the, if you go to the review and you can watch the uh, suspension getting squished, you can see exactly where the rocks could get kind of stuck in that little nutcracker linkage. I like that, nutcracker. Specialized should, yeah. specialized should put that in their marketing material. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> they will. <laughs> Let's talk about that fork and the rock shocks rear shock for a bit. Since we are talking suspension, what did you make of the boxer on the demo? Um, how was set up and yeah, general impressions. Uh, Boxer was the hardest one to do because it was, it's recommended settings were really far off what we ended up on. So it recommended somewhere like 118 PSI and we were up at 130. Um, other testers with similar weight were on 135, 140 PSI. 
So a hell of a lot more pressure needed to, to kind of get rid of it or reduce its main character trait, which is to go up and down a hell of a lot all the time. And this is the, the main trait of the boxer. And it doesn't seem to matter what you do with pressures or damping. You can kind of mute it a little bit, that character trait, but not get rid of it. So then just generally becomes something you have to be aware of, ride around and use like your own arm suspension to get around. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. you might want more low-speed compression. Is it as simple as saying that? No, we ran them pretty firm as well. I think I was one click from close on high speed and like in somewhere pretty extreme like Mojang, maybe even six or three clicks closed from fully yeah. close on low speed. We, we should also say that all of these trails, all of the terrain you rode it on, it's pretty damn steep. If you were in some other place in the world maybe the recommended pressures might be closer to what you would want. Is that fair to say? Potentially, yeah. Um, we've got, yeah, for sure, everything around here is quite steep, but there's areas in Morjan, there's some areas in like Chatel and stuff, which are not as steep as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just to do with the steepness, I think. It's also to do with like the way it deals with impacts and repeated impacts and stuff like that. It's just, it's got a very active character trait almost too active to the point where it's something you have to be aware of and consciously know about when you're dropping into stuff. Okay, interesting. So let's wrap this up with the demo. Uh, what would you say its strengths and weaknesses are? Let's let's talk about the good first. Give me a couple points where the demo is going to pull ahead of the other bikes. Uh, I said in the review, actually, I think it's the, it was one of the best bikes for just having in the back of the van for everything. Because as we'll get to a bit later with one of the other bikes, commitment levels, you're not going to be doing a race run every run every day. And this is a really cool bike to have in the back, ready to go and hit every trail, whether you knew it or not, in every condition. So I think it's one of its biggest strengths, biggest strengths sorry, is that kind of jack-of-all-trades ability. Yeah, it is a downhill bike. It's quite a niche product. But inside that, yeah, it is very well-rounded. Tell us what it's not good at. Going really flat out down fast. It can. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's like unrideable. It, it can. It just isn't quite up there with the likes of the Canyon or the Commentar. It's just at the ragged edge when you're really pushing it and you need the bike to have your back rather than be kind of going, oh, no, God. Then it's not quite there. Right. Since we're being Since we're being a bit hard on it, should we also mention the tires, Dan? It's also, just before going back, it's also not a good bike if you're really tall. There's only oh. three sizes, and the S4 is the shortest bike we tested. So if you're particularly tall or have a penchant for like long bikes, then you might struggle a little bit with the demo. It's quite short. Yeah, I feel like they could make an S5 or S6 in there even, and would be would be welcome for oh, a yeah, lot for of riders. Sure. Yeah. And then tires, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, A few topics that we'll go into here. I'm going to sound like I'm banging a drum, but yeah. Give it to us. (laughs) Well, it's a downhill bike, right? How hot, like, you go and look at any tire manufacturer and they have a downhill casing tire. So you just put two and two together and it's easy. But no brand still spec, lightweight casing tires just to have a lightweight number on paper. And yeah. No, I'm and not into that. Sorry. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but I feel like specialized, don't they do tires? I feel like they have their own downhill tires they can put on. 
Yeah, it's infuriating. <laughs> no, like these were the worst ones. Um, they were so thin. They're, they're grippy. The tread compound was good. Um, sorry, yeah, the tread block pattern was good. The compound was nice. They were just so flimsy. You could literally, on demand, burp 10 to 15 PSI out your tires, literally on demand. Whether that be on the trail or you said, hey, there's a curb on a road. You just threw your head at the ground, kicked your heels, and you could burp them super bad. And it's not fun because you end up covered in sealant. The rims are covered in sealant all around. You're covered in sealant. The bike's covered in sealant. Not fun. It's an I'm easy thing to do. Right? It's just nah. right. I'm also picturing like the front tire burping mid hard corner or, or like halfway up the lip of something. Not good. Oh uh, no, a friend's done that. He's ripped a tire off the front, and it still gives him like nightmares. But yeah, that's they were really bad tires for in deep hard compressions on trail. And especially going up like big jump faces, you'd feel the rim on the ground and it would fire you off at funny angles. And that is not fun at all. Did they put two sixes on this one? I can't remember. Was it nah, these, were the, these weren't the big balloony ones. No, these were like normal, normal with two fours. Okay, yeah, because they do make one. that. Yeah, either way. But I guess we should also mention that you had these bikes for so long that I just eventually they pretty much ended up with all the same tires on, correct? You ended up with a, they all Yeah, for sure. Them. I did yeah. do, when we did the time runs, yeah, we did do control tires. So we had Magic Mary downhill casing, ultra soft front and back. So when we did the timing, yes. But yeah, you've run bikes for a season, especially soft compound tires. You you have to change them a lot. So yeah, eventually they, I gave it, I gave them a good chance, um, but eventually just had to take them off and put on some proper downhill casing tires. Yeah, which makes sense. And I know, I know there's some comments about, you know, people saying, where are the control tires? So we did use them for everyone out there that's worried. But it's good. I mean, tires aren't cheap. So if you're buying a bike, it, it is nice to know if the ones come on it are, are good or not. And these ones are don't get the uh, recommendation at this point. They sound like great all mountain tires. Depends what mountain you're on about. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Specialized work. And I, I know it's, I think they do have their new ones, like the new T9, T5 things. They're, they're still working on because they're, tre- like you said, they're, Treading compound is good. So hopefully this next batch gets the uh, casing dialed. Right. So let's wrap it up with the demo. Dan, you said that this one goes and it gets the most well-rounded downhill bike award. Uh, well, it doesn't exude that flat out fast race feel of other bikes. You could swing a leg over it and have fun riding it on a variety of trails and terrains. It's easy to get along with. And uh, You made a note, just be aware of the sizing. And that is it for the demo let's go from the demo with all the pivots to a bike with just one giant pivot the aluminum commensal supreme dh 2927 now this bad boy has 215 millimeters of travel and it's a consumer direct bike that sells for five thousand dollars american weighed 37.7 pounds dan this thing's been of a bit of a winning machine hasn't it why do you think that is uh i think what to win a downhill world cup race it's a load of factors it's not just the bike you've got the rider their preparation their mental state loads of things going on but yeah this one has been a bike uh what did we say in our uh, ed found out it was actually the second most winning bike of all time really the year 2000 onwards what was the first? Did we? The session had like 38 race wins. The Common Star Supreme in all its guises had 34. And it actually, the Supreme had the longest running streak of any downhill bike. I think it was five races. Could be talking out my ass, but. 
No, it's uh, you go and watch a World Cup practice. Jesus, everyone is on them. Like every privateer or kind of shop sponsored rider is on there, and it's a really good package. It wants to go fast. It can go fast. It's got your back, and you can just go buy one one day pump up the tires and go race it the next day. It's a very good package for what it's intended to do. So what is it about this thing that makes it easy to ride quickly? Is it just that high pivot? Is it the geo? What do you put it down to? I wouldn't say it's easy to ride fast. Um, It definitely needs some activeness in there. A bit more of you like gritted teeth, if you will. Uh, I think I said in the review, and it honestly felt like that sometimes. You honestly need to channel your inner Amory Pierron. And you do that sharp elbows aggression and see how much he like moves the bike and works it. And it really does go. But also as well, oh, the high pivot hype is quite big at the moment. And I wonder if people start to associate high pivots with just a high pivot with performance and forget about the other factors that you need to blend into a bike to make it work well. You could have a high pivot bike that works like crap. So um, no, it's a culmination of things. It's got good geometry. Although what we measured actually we'll get to is a bit different. Um, the suspension's pretty good. It does a great job of uh, allowing you to go fast through big hits and rough terrain. It's sorted package. It's awesome. You just get it out of the box and go. Can can we talk about that geo that you just mentioned there? You said it was different than advertised. Uh, yeah. So we had the opportunity to go and three D scan all these bikes, and that also gave me the opportunity before we talked about, say, behind the numbers and suspension, to compare the actual bike's geometry to the real world, sorry, to the geometry tables. And some bikes like the Demo and the Canyon were pretty damn spot on, and some bikes like the Commensal were actually quite not. So, the, Are we talking like like two degrees of head angle here? Where's the difference? And how no, not, not two degrees. I think it was... Let me just check. Uh, so the, it was down at 61.2 degree head angle. And that's with like the same fork length that um, Comensal has stayed in. So that's also going to have an, uh, a help in like chucking it down a hill. Um, but it was actually quite a bit shorter. So it was 470 reach and they were quoting 480. That's huge. Yeah. That's a big, big difference. Yeah, it was quite a bit different. Yeah. And there's no adjustable geometry on the Supreme, is there? No, uh, Commonsart offer the Supreme in three different bikes. So they have a full mm-hmm. 29 version, a full 27.5 version, and then this was the latest version, the, the mullet version. No full 26, though. There's someone still beating me. they're doing three different frames, whereas some other brands are doing frames that can, can be converted to run different wheel sizes. Is there an approach that you prefer? I'm a fan of adjustability. Um, I don't believe, yeah, no. I'm definitely a fan of adjustability, um, but it needs to be usable and um, well thought out in how it works and what it adjusts. Um, but also, Commensal, you can see, are a brand driven quite by racing if you look at the guy behind the whole brand. And they've actually their race bikes have got a bit of adjustability in them which the production bikes don't in terms of where the shock position goes they've also been playing around with idler positions but yeah one of the things that adjustability can do is in 
increase the compromise in a bike. So I think Commensal have chosen to have more specific bikes per wheel size and try and nail the geometry and the suspension per wheel size setup rather than try and have one bike that can adapt to everything and perhaps lose some of that um, that focus on each wheel size. Mm-hmm. It being aluminum front to back probably makes that a bit easier compared to brands with full carbon bikes that we need a whole other mold as well to do that. So, I think so, yeah. They can keep somewhat the same tubes and, and forgings and potentially re-weld them in different locations. That aluminum might have a, a little bit of the reason for the discrepancies in GO2. There's a little bit more tolerance for aluminum, how it comes out compared to a carbon frame typically. That uh, fair to say? Yeah, that's true. But usually you're talking plus minus yeah, half that, a degree on head angle and they were quite far off there. They were stating that the head angle should be around 62.5 and it was 61.2. So yeah, That's pretty wild. That makes it like the slackest downhill production downhill bike out there, I think. <laughs> We didn't do that award. The yeah, donut's they get coming, it. Though, the donut, donut, donut's yeah, coming. Get the, get the dual crown on the donut and we can <laughs> battle this one. <laughs> well, that's crazy. You know, plus or minus half a degree to me. And, you know, I know that if we didn't know the number, it wouldn't matter. But when companies are offering, when one of the selling features is adjustable geometry that lets you adjust the head angle by half a degree, and then the bike might be plus or minus half a degree. So you could be a full degree out. Why? <laughs> Anyways. It's a bit tighter on carbon bikes, yeah, from the process that it's For made, sure. But. Yeah. 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 Dan, this is another downhill bike in your group test where the recommended settings didn't jive with you. Uh, you said the bike was far too stiff. The rebound speeds were far too quick. And you went so far to say that the bike could need a different shock with a different rebound tune. What? What's up with that? Yeah, bizarrely, like most, oh, it's not just with downhill bikes, but lots of the times bikes come and even the suggested settings are generally too soft, too active. Um, the comments all arrived and actually, thank you comments all, it was the bike that arrived with suggested setups and they even gave you like pressure ranges, um, rebound and compression click ranges. There's even a nice sticker on the frame that tells you uh, what sag you need to run depending on if you want a firm or a soft setup. And we should really stress that point to being a mail order brand I mean, a lot of times these bikes are just showing up at somebody's home and maybe they can't just quickly go into a shop to help a suspension setup or something. This can save a ton of time. And with consumer direct brands, it's super important. Yeah, like your the, the taste that people get in the, their mouth from riding a bike uh, is going to come from how it gets set up. And it, you can have the world's best bike set up poorly and people will not like it. And they might associate that then with just the brand or the product. So it's, I think... It's so important to have bikes arriving with suggestions for where to go and good suggestions mm-hmm. in terms of pressures and spring. Norco do such a good job in that, I have to say. I wish mm-hmm. everyone could arrive with the same kind of level of detail in setup that Norco do. Now, having said that, I mean, Dan, it sounds like a pretty big fucking deal that the bike might need a different shock <laughs> for you to get on with it. Is, is, the, is the stock tune that far off? What's going on here? So yeah, I digressed so much that I didn't actually answer your question. Yeah, um, so generally bikes arrive and they need more springs, more damping and so on. The Commensal arrived and actually I ran it at the lower end of their pressures and rebound spectrum. And that thing was so firm and so fast, like rebound, it was really 
it was tricky to ride. Like, for example, when you're, you're waiting the bike for, say, a jump face or in a compression, in your head, you know when the bike's going to come back at you from your, like, push into it. And this thing was just, like, pinging back, like, so fast. And so slowing the rebound down and down and down on the shock and on the fork as well helped. But then I arrived at the point where the shock was fully shut and I couldn't get it any slower. So, and it was a light rebound tune on the on the Super Deluxe. So yeah, I tried it with an Erlin's TTX on there as well and managed to get it slow enough with that shock. So it was interesting. But again, coming back to common style, where they come from and their their heritage and their drive from racing, their suggested setups are informed heavily by their race teams. So those pressures and rebounds and compressions do quite a lot come from the really fast races so just a small point that you maybe if you're feeling like it's not the nicest bike from the socks that instead run it a touch slower and softer and it might work a bit hey hey maybe amory perion's suspension settings don't work for me just saying (laughs) just throwing it out there Uh, yeah it's kind of cool yeah i I think it's kind of cool they want that route i mean it's it's unfortunate that it it may limit some riders that aren't that speed but it's kind of cool it's like buying a like a race car that's it's just a race stock version you can get off the shelf sort of thing, which yeah. isn't that common. But, exactly. but I, my air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but again, it's a, it's a hats off to Common Cell because they were basically the only ones to provide recommended starting points and detailed recommended starting points in the setup. Yeah, yeah, that's important. It's, yeah, it's pretty wild still that for these kind of bikes that those don't exist. But yeah, yeah you, you chuck these bikes down gnarly terrain. They need to yeah. go down gnarly terrain. So arguably, yeah. if you want, they need. Yeah, and the designers obviously wrote them yeah like the designers have written them they could give some oh you hope but, so yeah yeah hope so. <laughs> <laughs> they better have speaking of suspension dan you wrote that you were running 13 to 17 percent sag on the back of the commensal when i'm setting a downhill bike up i feel like it's like you know i'm in the 30s so why so little sag on this bike uh, that was actually came straight off the recommendations from Commensal. And that I'd say the wow. Commensal was suggesting much less sag than the others. Now, I, if I'm going to set up a bike from scratch with no settings, I will generally go for 25% sag in the rear as a starting point um, and then go move on from there and try and deal with his problems or whatever. Um, but generally 25%. But yeah, the comments up just, it's, it sounds crazy. It doesn't sound like a lot. It might feel sometimes weird in the car park, but we ride bikes up on the hill and up on the hill with those sag settings, it works really well. So it doesn't feel oversprung when you're riding it? No, not at all. Okay. You said something interesting about the suspension. You said single big hits, as mentioned, are dealt with really well, but repeated hits in fast succession are dealt with just as well by other suspension systems on test. I think some of us see that high main pivot and we think magic carpet ride, but I mean, there's way more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, like we touched on before, like a bike is the sum of its parts and just just nailing all its performance on one pivot is uh it's not the way to go and i think with the high, like we said with a high pivot hype recently that has started to happen a bit too much but no um if you uh, places like morjan there are so many opportunities to like just literally pull up to the moon and deal with the landing later and in those situations that comments i was like the butter machine it just dealt with those big single hard flat landing impacts so well just like you were landing into a memory foam mattress. 
But then you took it into like fast repeated hits of all sizes, whether they're big or small or roots or rocks and stuff. And it isn't night and day better than say a bike with a lower main pivot. Okay. Do you think that one of the reasons it feels so good on those huge single impacts is because it gets a full meter longer at bottom out? (laughs) (laughs) Could be, yeah. That would be where an axle path is going to help if you're just saying like one impact and then, yeah. That thing Yeah, this thing? It was crazy. Yeah. So the static chainstay length is 455 millimeters and then at the sag point, extends out to 475 at bottom out, Casimir, this monster grows to 525 millimeters. So, Dan, in the corners, you come flying into a corner, you're coming into a berm, suspension is compressing. Can you tell me, does that have an effect on how the bike handles? Is it something that you have to get used to compared to the other bikes? Uh, yeah, I think this was one of the parts that is attributable to the bike's character of really needing to kind of grab it by the ears and and muscle it a bit more in that the more you muscle it and ride harder the longer the thing gets at the back and therefore needs more muscling and more hard riding to keep it in check but it's yeah it works though i like that character trait about it It like it really does egg you on but yeah, if you're going to look at the the numbers and stuff, it's for sure it it changes your your rider weight and you, so your system weight, your rider and bike weight falls between the two contact patches, and you can have very subtle changes in load and like rider position between those contact patches to change like how your bike's going to feel. And this is one of the problems with a a high pivot bike is that you have so much uh, movement of your rear contact patch out the way. I bet that thing corners in big, fast corners, though. I bet it's pretty amazing. Did you notice, like, as it stretches out and you just, like, plaster it against the side of the corner? Did you, did that, did that, <laughs> did it do that? <laughs> I'd say in, that- in tight corners, in big corners and stuff, it's not something that makes it, it's not something like you're riding it and you're like, ah, oh, crap, I wish my back wheel was closer to me. It's not that, it's not so specific. It's not so, you can put your finger on exactly that being a problem, even though it isn't a problem. But I think it's one of the things that does. No, no, I was thinking. It, I was thinking it was good, probably, maybe. Like I bet it feels good in the corners as it. That's what I've noticed with some high pivot bikes. Maybe it's just me, but I like how they they almost like sit and as they're extending, it's like you, you know, like those the rides at the fair where you get like plastered to the wall. I feel like that's what the high pivot. The gravitron, man. The gravitron. Yeah. Did you get the gravitron <laughs> feeling on this bike? <laughs> we got. Yeah, it is pretty like good when you get it locked in. In Mojan, there's some really good turns to lean over, like horizontal, lock it in, and. Yeah, it goes around them damn fast. I had some mm-hmm. really fun days on that bike following uh, Cyril Kurtz, the guy that used to race for Honda. And he was, him and a local guy, Vinny Poupon, were hooking it. And that bike let me get away with murder. Literally nice. got away with murder. <laughs> Sounds like just a casual downhill lap. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, so. not so much. No. No, it was I, not I casual. That place is so fun to ride. I'm going to get there eventually. What what happens, Dan, when the ground is more level, the speeds are lower, things are way tighter? Does this compare to the other downhill bikes? How does the big comment cell feel in that in those sorts of situations? Um, I think we've already spoke about the demo, and it's a good one to compare it to. So when you slow the speeds down, potentially want to jib about a bit or, or something like that. I think I wrote in the article that you do get the kind of sense that the bike's talking to you saying like to stop this nonsense and just get to the bottom of the track, just like pick the speed up again. It, it can do it, 
but at those slower speeds it yeah it becomes more noticeable that it is a bit bigger that it grows when you get into it that it has got a bit more heft onto it um it doesn't make it unrideable in those situations it's fine it's not the i don't feel it's the ultimate best for just having a bike if you're just going to go hooking like big fest series jumps or just hitting jump tracks and stuff it really kind of has that urgency in it that it wants to get to the bottom of the trail and like just pin it and if you do send it down a jump track it's all right because you can just pull and try and find some quads instead of doubles yeah i've always had a real hard time at those fest jumps on the supreme bike i (laughs) definitely prefer the demo for the fest jumps everybody Okay, so let's talk about some pros and cons before we wrap it up with the come and sell. It sounds like this thing is a monster with the big hits and balls out riding style. It sounds like it's pretty damn stable as well, Dan, Um, but maybe not the best for the tight stuff. And that shock issue, not getting the rebounds, not being able to get the rebounds slow enough for your preferences anyway. I mean, that's definitely a con. Anything else you want to tack on to those four things? No, I think you summed it up. It's it's a really good bike. We we touched on it from the beginning. It's something so well specced. You have good setup from Common Sal, even though yeah, it was airing on the side of a very racy setup. But it's something you can just pull out of the box, pump up, and and ride fast and comfy, and just go take some risks on it. All right, moving on from the Common Sal Supreme, we'll move to the Canyon Center CFR. It's another consumer direct bike. This one's got a carbon frame, and. Uh, I think all of us agree that it's one of the better looking bikes, downhill bikes out there. And this one will go for $5,799 US dollars and weighs in at 34.7 pounds. I think that's that also make it the lightest bike on test here. Uh, yes, that one was the lightest. Yeah, that's a pretty lightweight for a downhill bike, especially at that price too. Um, yeah, I just, because- I just want to interject here, sorry for one second, 34.7 pounds. Max, one of our videographers, and the the PB guy that edits these podcasts, he just built up a Meta TR, and it weighs over thirty seven pounds. What did he put? What? I don't know. But this Kenya downhill bike weighs thirty four. What the hell? Uh, you have to go Max, out your way to... to make a trail bike weigh that much. Yeah, Max, we need to talk. I've got a <laughs> Meta TR too, and it doesn't weigh that much. Well, let's chat with them. <laughs> but either way, yeah, thirty four point seven pounds on the Canyon. Um, and you mentioned that it uses a very similar suspension layout to the demo. So what is it exactly? Can you kind of describe what they're doing there, what they're trying to accomplish? Yeah, uh, Canyon, to settle this argument in the comments, Canyon did this one first, uh, specialized if you will came second or copied them. Um, yeah, it's a four-bar layout. So you've basically got uh, the same four bars as, say, a normal the cube that we look at and stuff. But what they've got is two extra links that drive the shock, that kind of scissor and pull apart to drive the shock. And the first iteration of the sender did this to separate the, if you will, a bit the um, acceleration and deceleration of the bike, so the anti-res and the anti-squat, and then how the bike compresses the shock, so the leverage ratio. So they had a bit of separation in how they could deal with those things and adjust those things down the road because they were separate set of links but what canyon and specialized have now done is made more of those pivots concentric so somewhat maybe taken away a little bit of that uh ultimate adjustability say for if a racer's got a preference and they want this custom set of links so but it's a four bar link design with an extra two links driving the shock Mm -hmm. makes sense then we're talking about adjustability a little bit if you look at that link there's 
this little mark that says 27.5, 29-inch. And that's not exactly what you would think it is, right? Can you explain what's going on with that? No, this was a bit confusing. So Canyon do the mullet concept, but they've split it by size. So S and M have the mullet set up in wheel sizes and their L and XL have 29 at front and back. And then obviously there's different mainframes for the different sizes and there's a different rear triangle for the different sizes as well, uh, wheel sizes as well. But they've also then adjusted the kinematics and labeled the two shock options on the links. But it's a bit confusing that they let, went to the, all that effort of making different mainframes, different rear triangles, but then used the same set of links for the two bikes and just told people to run them in one or the other. But secretly, it's actually a progression adjuster. So it doesn't do anything to the geometry whatsoever. And I actually changed it on our bike and we, we analyzed it as well. It changes the leverage ratio and changes the travel a little bit. So it chops a bit of travel off. How noticeable is that progression adjustment on the trail? Uh, very, because it drops it from, I've got all my graphs open here. Uh, He's a real engineer, everybody. <laughs> there's a lot. So it goes from in the 29 inch setting, which I will say, which is what Canyon say, if you've got a 29 array wheel, you should just run it in the 29 inch setting. And I kind of agree. So in that setting, it has just over about 28% progression. And in the, if you swap it to the, the 27.5 hole, you get 23% progression and you chop the travel down to 193 millimeters but it actually drops the whole leverage ratio curve as well. So you can actually run a much softer spring. So I was running uh, a 500 pound spring in the 29 hole and you could drop that spring down to by almost 20 pounds, 25 pounds when you change the two to the 27.5 hole. Cool, secret bonus adjustability in there, that's good. You wrote that you got up to speed pretty quickly on the sender. Why do you think that was? Um, yeah, that bike arrived and it wasn't long before the lift shut for the day. So I literally just set it up real quick, put 25% sag in the back and chucked it down the World Cup track and for a bit of a kind of throw it in at the deep end. And halfway down, I was like, you, just, you, don't have, you have no business doing this speed. You really have no business doing this speed first run. But... I think uh, one of it is its geometry is pretty similar, if you will, to a lot of the Enduro, big Enduro bikes I ride. So the reach, um, the stack, head angles and stuff. It kind of, if you told me to shut my eyes and put my hands out to where I think my bars should be, it's probably where the canyon has them. It's nice and balanced front to back in its geometry. The suspension is not too linear, not too progressive. It's nice and supportive, quite predictable. And it all adds up to a bike that, yeah, you can just jump on and go. And that is the same with everyone that rode it. Like when uh, my fiance Nadine got the chance to ride one as well. So she rode the medium. Uh, we did the same thing, like quick setup, threw her out on it, and she was flying, hooking jumps and stuff already. It was something that every tester like came back and had the same feeling. You wrote that it does demand a little more rider input to swing it over from corner to corner in quick succession. So like those back-to-back corners, sounds like what you're saying is it just requires more body English to get through that kind of stuff? Exactly, yeah. Does that mean it's slower? Does that mean the bike is slower in those sort of tight settings? No. Is that I, how you would... I think it just demands, it asks a tiny little bit more from you. It asks to be ridden, if you will rather than just kind of uh, passengered. It wants to be piloted. And I, as I said in the intro, I, I kind of like that when a bike does ask that a little bit to be ridden properly. 
Um, but it is a big bike. It is long at the front. It's long at the back. 29er wheels front and back does take a bit more rider input, a bit more piloting to like swing it over from side to side to side. But you set your fastest time on this thing anyway. Yeah, when you put that in, that thing just goes so goddamn fast. And again, it just deals with everything and moves on to the next situation. It's it's so composed. That's I think is the biggest trait of that bike was it's just its ultimate composure and its chassis. It just never felt flustered. Mm-hmm. Just every hit, every impact, every situation, it just dealt with it and you're just on to the next thinking about mm-hmm. what's coming next and letting off the brakes and pushing it harder and harder and harder to see when it would get flustered. And it really never did. Yeah. I mean, considering that these bikes are downhill race bikes, the fact that the Canyon set the fastest time, doesn't that mean it's the best one? Doesn't that mean it's the winner? Uh, if we drew the line there, then yeah. <laughs> if we, <laughs> if we started to bring in some other like factors of owning a bike, um, no, it's um it didn't exude from it the kind of steadfast um durability that say the commensal had like the commensal honestly felt like you could ride it hard put it away dirty next day get it out do the same the canyon's got lots of features on there lots of details it needs some looking after it's like you said it's a light bike and there's lots of metal parts in there. And when you start to think at the end of the day, all right, how much actual carpet fibers are in this frame, then maybe there's not so many. And um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't give me the most confidence for running that super hard the way some of the guys out here do literally like the level of maintenance from some guys out here is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As in low maintenance, you mean, or high maintenance? Had, like some people just ride ride hard put away wet kind of thing exactly this would yeah. survive that style right yeah no yeah, you said you noticed there was like a little bit of flex between the uh the upper links and where they connect to the main frame did that ever get worse or cause any other issues besides being a little bit disconcerting when you're wiggling the bike in the parking lot not yet well no is a short answer to that but lots of the guys we tested uh are also bike engineers as well and have experience with other brands and lots of other bikes and when you'd say like, hey, look at this, and you'd grab the seat post, you'd grab the rear wheel, and like you'd flex the two, their eyes would widen, and they're like, whoa, that's like mm-hmm. a lot. And you stick your fingers in there, and you can see like, you can see how much the links twist and contort, and then you can see like the pivots almost open in a bit there, and it, it was concerning for a lot of people that have a lot to do with bikes. Mm-hmm. We should also cap that off though there were no actual mechanical issues with it during testing but you are concerned with the longer term reliability it sounds like yes so the canyon had zero problems while we were riding it it did suffer from the same fate as this demo in that it got lots of stuff trapped between that link and the chainstay um but no there were no issues but there's just lots of things on there that start to wave for me as a bike engineer uh, little bit of a red flag that it needs a bit more care and attention and a bit more upkeep in its maintenance. All right. So let's talk pros and cons before we wrap it up with the Canyon. Uh, pros, it's light. That's got to help. For sure. When, you, it, when you've got aggressive geometry like that, if you've got less heft to shift around, that's nice. That is noticeable for sure. Right. And it's obviously fast as hell and somewhat well-rounded, Dan. Would you agree with that? As a race bike, it's yeah, it's well-rounded. I favoured that bike in a lot of um, factors. It's it's geometry, it's suspension feel, 
it's got really good adjustability at both ends, uh, so reach adjustment and chainstay length adjustment. And it's all out, just flat out race field, which is also backed up by the fact the fact that it went the fastest. is yeah. wholly addictive. Cons, there's some questions there about reliability. You might not have had any issues during your test, but you're wondering. And then you also say that maybe it's not the best if things are super tight. That fair? Yeah. Uh, lots of stuff like Champry and Morjan, we do have some tracks in there where you have got super, super tight stuff. It does need a little bit, yeah, a bit more like chucking it around the corners. There is a bike that needed even more chucking around the corners, but. Oh boy. Uh, We're going to get to that one. It definitely benefits, yeah, from that kind of 29er feel of a uh, bit higher turning, lean it a bit more, and take advantage of the wheels and stuff there. But when you do, it's quite a benefit. So let's get to our other German bike. It's our second carbon bike. This is the Cube 215. I'm not going to say the whole name. This thing's on 29-inch wheels. Uh, it is a looker, though, and it retails 5,000 euro. Um, I don't think they have any distribution in America, but if we just do the conversion, you're looking at about six grand before all the taxes and border fees that will add up to even more. Um, and Cube came in at little over 35 pounds, so pretty reasonable weight. Dan, I remember spending like 10 grand getting my orange to weigh 37 pounds all those years ago, and now all these bikes are just like, like the heavy one is 37 pounds. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I remember my friend's original like version 1 V10 was something like 20, 21, 22 kilos. I thought you were going to say pounds. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no. I was like, I want that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still yeah, we had a guy it. here with the with the first V10, and he had titanium spokes and a Dorado on it. Man, that thing was amazing. We got to do an OG downhill pounds. podcast. Oof, yeah. Yeah, forty six pounds on his on his V10. Yeah. It used to be the it used to be the thing almost. You were like, people were proud of how heavy their downhill bikes were. More weight goes faster, <laughs> yeah. right? right? Like science. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So this cube, Dan, looks pretty straightforward to me. It's got a four-bar horsed link suspension system delivering 198 millimeters of travel. But it uses an Imperial shock, an Imperial Fox shock instead of a metric shock, which down the road might cause some compatibility issues. Dan, why does this brand new bike use an Imperial shock as opposed to a metric shock? Other advantages? Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise when we were on the Zoom call uh, when that bike was getting launched. I, th I was kind of like, really? Did you just say Imperial? Um, uh, advantages just on paper are that, yeah, you do have uh, a tiny bit more stroke for a shorter eye-to-eye -eye package. Um, but And Cube also got the, the okay from Fox that for the lifetime of this bike, they're going to at least have the, the Fox shocks to fit in imperial sizes and other brands like Erlins and EXT and some other guys are still making uh, imperial length shocks but it is a bit of a question mark on how long that's going to last for in the future I'm not so sure yeah it's kind of odd I mean it I get what they're going for but it's it could also just I I don't the place no well I mean I get on paper their reasoning I understand what they're saying but then I don't understand why they didn't just move the placement in the frame and use a metric shock like 99.9% .9 of all new downhill bikes. If you have a metric shock with a, so right now 
you're limited. The longest stroke shots you can get a 75 mil. So it doesn't sound like much, but a 76.2, which is what that, that shocks a 241.3 by 76.2. Sorry, I'm an engineer. We were dealing with these shocks a while ago. It doesn't sound like much, but when you put that through a leverage ratio, it actually makes quite a bit of difference at the rear wheel. So you can it can make a big difference in how you can adjust your leverage ratio when you're designing the bike. And it is a shorter eye-to-eye package because if you want to run a metric without trunnion, you're looking at a 250 eye-to-eye. And if you're placing that vertically in the bike like you're doing on the Cube, that's kind of hard to package. 250 is a big, big frigging shock. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like I understand why they ended up with that, but I also don't. So, you know, we'll see where I'd imagine I would put lots of money that the next version of this doesn't have an Imperial shock, but we'll see. <laughs> I'll take that bet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Working on, working on downhill bikes, working on downhill bike development back in 2016, 17, we were still at that point where Metric had just come out and we were discussing we were going backwards and forwards quite a bit on downhill bikes with like oh do we go imperial or metric but we were right at the cusp of this new metric length but now we're quite a few years on and it's kind of settled so yeah i can understand it but it's kind of it was a bit of a surprise that they've done that right now Mm -hmm. let's keep it on the rear suspension here this thing has a ton of progression isn't it we were talking about the Canyon having like 20-something, Dan. Doesn't this thing have 42% progression built into the rear suspension? Yeah, another thing that, had that oh, this had me chin-scratching as well, like 42 is a lot. Like even at the demo at 35, that is quite quite a lot of progression. And there is generally, I dare say, a trend now to come back a bit in progression. Like we saw the Canyon was at 28 and the common style is actually even at 19% progression. So I should also state that the progression percentage is one part of it. Where your leverage ratio curve sits, what those leverage ratio values are is also important and the curve shape. But yeah, 42 is a lot. Like I'd say I'd stick my neck out and say too much. Now, as someone who, I mean, I don't live on a downhill bike like you, Dan, but I know that these things, you're meant to ride them hard. You're meant to hit all this shit as hard as you can. Aren't they, I mean, shouldn't they be ramping up like that? What's the drawback to having that much progression? So in the same way that you were talking a little bit earlier about um, a very linear bike, you obviously know that that would either bottom out all day long or you overspring it and reduce the amount of traction. The, the same is true of a, you can have a too progressive bike and because we sort of try and keep leverage ratios at the end of travel, if you will, around two to one, if you have that much progression, that much change, it means that the leverage ratios at the start of travel and generally throughout travel are really high, like crazy high. This bike started up at like 3.5 to one. Now that means that when you like breathe on the seat, it starts to compress. So it's, it's very supple bike, but there's so much ramp in there as well. I'm not sure this bike even gets 198 mil of travel. And it's just, <laughs> it, it, because of that so high leverage, so much, so big leverage ratios all the time in there, it translates to, for lack of a better phrase, like quite a big bouncy sofa, which when you ride at a bit of a slower speed is, is all right. You can appreciate that traction, but 
On a bike like the Cube that is designed to really go fast, that kind of active springy nature, it translates into a lot of chassis movement and like something that you have to compensate for as a rider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can kind of hit that like wall of progression. I've been on bikes and similarly, potentially too much progression and you're kind of like super soft and then it, a bigger hit, it's not, it doesn't have that nice smooth bottomless feel. You're kind of like, oh, I'm, you don't, you're not hitting the end of the stroke, you're hitting the progression and that yeah. can be a limiting factor. Yeah, there's definitely another, no way you'd run a you can't run an air shock on this without issues you'd run like 400 psi in your shock i'd imagine if you to get to work should also point out as well um a high leverage ratio uh moves the shock slower so on the one hand a high leverage ratio puts more force into the shock so you need more spring to support it but and the inverse is that it moves the shock slower so you actually generate less damping so when I talked about in the review that the kind of spring to damping balance is off, that's what I was kind of referring to. It needs a lot of spring, and it, it isn't generating as much damping as some of the other bikes with lower leverage ratios. So you're kind of pushed off to like one side of setup and ride feel with this bike. Mm-hmm. Cube also went pretty far with the geometry. This thing is the longest and slackest and lowest of the four downhill bikes you tested. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna quote you here, Dan. You said, you probably wouldn't want to ride with the needed level of commitment that the Cube requires every run of the day. I like to ride fast. I really do. But on the Cube, the commitment and piloting levels needed are something that I wouldn't be in for for every run. It almost sounds like you're saying that the bike is geared so much towards racing that when you don't want to ride at your 105% speed, it's maybe not the most fun bike to ride. Is that is that like a fair translation? I think, yeah, there were some comments about this that were to the effect of just man up. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we, have, we had some bikes in test. This was the joy of this going back to back. We have some bikes in test that have that pointy race feel, but have it in enough of a manageable package that you can actually use it. And lots of the traits in the cube made it approach unmanageable. So I don't think it was more in terms of a, oh, you just need to race it and ride harder and stuff. It's really that it demanded that of you. And it was quite the tiring bike to ride, especially when you went back to back. And I thought I'd just address the elephant in the room of that these bikes aren't for pootling. They're kind of, they do need high commitment levels in them to get the best out of them. But things like the Canyon and the Commensal uh, just had that more manageable um, feel to them. And this was actually another bike that didn't quite stack up in the say um, to the same geometry on paper. It was uh, the head angle is a little bit different a touch slacker and it was actually a bit shorter it was down at 485 mil reach not 490 so this was actually close to the same length as the comments out so it's not like you're riding a barge so if we if we had that approach to racing uh, we'd all be riding like pole length bikes but just at some point it becomes unmanageable and you have to kind of bring the bike's ability to ride fast back to what you're able to do as well so we covered lots of cons there. What do, what do you like about the Cube? Let's finish the Cube up with a couple of pros. Oh, I honestly, that thing, you could 
this uh, if you know the red track in Mojan, it starts off with some pretty big wide open turns that go back to back to back and in those situations where with a smooth ground uh, quite an open wide turn lots of banking you could take the brakes off this thing you just literally set up nice and high leaned it over and you did not need to bother with the brakes it was like it locked into a rail and it it felt like it accelerated around the turns and that in those situations, it was the fastest. But like I said, a downhill racetrack or a downhill track in, of any form is not just exactly those corners, big, wide, smooth. But in those situations, God, it was really quite fast, crazy fast. Mm-hmm. Hey, Casimir, which of these four bikes interests you the most? You live in you live in Bellingham, Washington. You got some rowdy trails by you. You like shuttle runs. You might do a downhill race next year. Who knows? Which of these four downhill bikes are you most interested in? Mm. <clears throat> I'd like to ride that common saw. It's been the last one I rode was the old, like, like a few generations ago. So it had the similar suspension design, but it was a lot shorter. So I'd like to ride the modern version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do like the demo. I've only ridden the 29 inch version, but that too, those are probably the two that would like, if I was going to buy one, those ones catch my eye, but mm-hmm. um, I've never ridden a Yeah. I haven't ridden a sender. So I think that would be awesome. I want to ride all of them. I just want to ride all the down. <laughs> but yeah, I do think that, the, uh, I think that I would more than likely just based on reading these reviews and numbers and stuff, I think I'd probably enjoy the common solid, the specialized the most. Right. So Dan, we gave the most well-rounded award to the demo Who's getting your your pick? Which downhill bike of this four are you going to choose if you're going to go racing next season? Uh, it was the Commensal. It does have a bit of a character trait in there in that you really do need to grab it by the ears. But when you do, it's right up there with the speed of the canyon. And I think it's a real good companion for a long time. In that it, it also has a real steadfast durability feel to it. In a like dream world, I'd take basically the geometry of the sender, the adjustability of the sender and the suspension of the sender, but give it that commensal robustness to it. But that, like I keep coming back to, that commensal is a bike you can order, it arrives, pump the tires up and go and race the next day. And I think that's also evident in how many we see at World Cup races or races around the globe. Mm-hmm. And that price too, you know, if you're a privateer, you're trying to save money, so you got money for like race entry fees and stuff. That's a pretty attractive price point there compared to some of the others that yeah. cost a They have quite a few. Yeah, that one was uh, actually a bike that wasn't the top end bike from a brand sent to us, which I also appreciated. And it it, it didn't have, it, it wasn't held back because of that. And it's quite cool that Common Sal have even got specs from Fox, from RockShox, from Erlins, like in their lineup. So they've got quite a few different options to please a lot of people. Okay, so those are our four downhill bikes that Dan Roberts has been testing for the past bunch of months. Uh, We're going to get to some more general questions now. I mean, he's been riding these things a shit ton over the last, how long, Dan? Four, five, six months. And I'm sure that you've got a whole bunch of info to share. My first question, if downhill bikes are all about racing, and they, I mean, they kind of should be, can't we just look at World Cup results to see which bike is the best? Isn't it that easy? Uh, it could be. <laughs> if you want to make it that easy, why not? Uh, no, again, it comes back to lots of downhill bikes will never be raced. Um, so we, it, 
you need to take your own individual scenario and terrain into account when you're looking at these bikes. Like we said, some of them are pure race bikes, and that's really where they, uh, both in the feel of them and in how much maintenance they need. But if that's your kind of uh, situation, then, then that's going to suit you. But uh, no, generally, lots of downhill bikes get sent on just big jump trails day in, day out. And so while we can look at them, I think you need to take a pinch of salt with it and also who's riding it. Right. So you tested two aluminum downhill bikes and two carbon bikes. We're going to talk about weight in a second, but first I want to talk about frame material. I know these things are completely different. They got different wheels. They got different suspension in some cases, but do you think there's any advantage in going with a carbon frame over an aluminum frame or vice versa, not talking about weight? Uh, if you take weight out of it, yes. Um, purely from an engineering side and bike development side of things, um, carbon fiber is hugely adjustable in terms of the material and what you can do with it. So as a geeky engineer, carbon fiber is amazing. Whether that application to certain frames or certain parts of bikes is good or bad, that's a topic for another day. But also, it shouldn't take anything away from aluminium as a, a material. It isn't like cheap man's carbon. Uh, aluminium is also a fantastic material to work with. It's just, it requires a different method, a different thought process and stuff. But You had about a three pound spread between the heaviest bike and the lightest bike. I know they're different bikes again, but do you think that three pounds counts for anything? Does that matter? Yeah, weight is important. It's just... I think lots of people forget how many things to go into a bike are important. Um, so yeah, weight for sure. It's important. It's just how high up on your priority list is it on mine? It's not at the top. Especially when you have the chair left helping you out. <laughs> no, but like we mentioned, the uh, things it's in, in, in combination with other factors of a bike, like on the Canyon, that is, uh, quite a big geometry it requires a lot of muscle but that was helped out by the fact it was quite a featherweight bike so that like inherent stability from the bike's geometry was aided by the fact it was a bit lighter to flick around right right let's move on to brakes three of these four dh bikes came with code rsc's and you mentioned that all three had a bit of fade now to be fair it is steep as hell where you live and you have some big mountains because we talked about this and I laughed at you. You you were like, those co code RSCs, they do fade a little bit. And I said, what? But here we are. So the Cube, now that one came with bigger MT7s. So those have a ton of power. But you did mention that the lever perches were too flexible and it made it feel kind of vague. So when it comes to downhill bikes, Dan, what is your break of preference and why? Uh, at the moment, I'm running Hope uh, V4s. They, no, honestly, no break is perfect, but we seem to have the least amount of problems with Hope V4s or Hayes Dominions, the four-piston ones. Or if you could get a set, those Trickstuff Maximus were really good. But they cost the earth and arrive longer than it takes to make a baby. So, <laughs> Yeah, they come in a nice wooden box, though, so you have to, have to look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, those Dominions are underrated. I like those, too. They... I wish they're they showed amazing. up on more bikes. Like yeah. the levers, 
the lever is so light and yeah, like I've yeah, it's like they just haven't got the traction that they deserve because I'm a I'm a fan of those. Yeah, those haze brakes. Yes, yeah. Lots of people out here are slowly converting to those haze brakes for sure. Uh, I want to talk about enduro bikes for a bit, Dan. We've seen a lot of people reach for full-on enduro race bikes, sell their downhill bikes, and just kind of go that route because obviously an enduro race bike is more versatile. You can pedal the damn thing up to the top of most mountains. Um, For those who might never get a chance to ride those two types of machines, a full-on enduro bike and a full-on DH race bike, they might think that that enduro bike comes pretty close to the downhill bike uh, as far as ability goes, but that's probably not the case. What is the difference on the trail for everybody listening between a contemporary enduro bike and a proper downhill bike? Um, For me, the difference, it's less about the speed you can do, although you can go faster on a downhill bike. It's for me more about the composure at speed on a full on downhill bike. Those things are so steadfast so comfy at the speeds they're doing so unflustered in compared comparison to like an enduro bike even the best full-on enduro bikes you can kind of fly straight past the limit of even the best ones and just chuck yourself down a hill with less care okay i'm going to wrap this podcast up with a handful of rapid fire questions we're going to put you on the spot here does one of these four downhill bikes better suit a rider who is a straight liner, more of a monster truck rider, and which bike would it be? A straight liner monster truck rider would be the Cube. If you just want to go only straight, no turns, just Cube. <laughs> that sounds like a boring ride to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. But fast, maybe fast though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which bike is best for the rider that's smooth and precise, uh, or maybe has smoother terrain but still wants a downhill bike? Uh, demo, because you can maybe take advantage of those tires then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <all> right. <laughs> you just got to run them at 40 PSI. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll stick with that one. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which of the four bikes best suit steep, gnarly, rocky terrain? Like when I think World Cup downhill race at Champery, which bike is the bike you want? Uh, can you? Need Jeopardy music here. Flat out. Uh, most okay. composure. Yeah. All right. And which of the bikes did you prefer on the jumps? Uh, specialized with some proper tires on it. Uh, Casimir, do we have anything else? I think that's pretty good. I think one thing I want to mention to anybody that's made it this far in the podcast if you're sitting at home and it's snowy and cold and nasty out, if you just type in Champry, Switzerland in Google and street view that and look at the place where Dan's been getting to ride all these bikes, you're going to try to figure out how to move there. It's ridiculous. So go on a little adventure on the internet if you're trapped at home. Yeah, because it's amazing. Come over. It's, It's lovely. All right, everybody, that is it for our Downhill Bike Group Test podcast. Remember, you can read all these reviews on Pig Bike on the website itself, as well as a head to head article. And a big fork comparison article, Dan, we're probably going to have to do a whole entire other podcast about that one. So get ready. Uh, Let us know in the comments below which downhill bike of the four you would prefer and why. And post your questions in there too. Dan's going to get in there. I'll make sure he gets in there and answers some questions underneath this podcast. We'll see you all next week. 